You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, this is Bennett Kelly. Thanks for listening to Cyberlaw Business Report. Before you take a recess to hear the latest internet law news and commentary, you are hereby ordered to download the Webmaster Radio.fm mobile app for iPhone and Android. Okay, maybe not ordered. But why not? You can listen live to my show and all our show hosts every day on our live stream or download past episodes with ease. So download the webmasterradio.fm mobile app in the iTunes store or in the Google Play store. It's an open and shut case. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and please be seated. This is Bennett Kelly, quarters in session. And I'm speaking from the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica, California, the heart of Silicon Beach. Before we start, I want to extend our deepest and most sincere um, sympathies to Veronica Miller on the tragic death of her brother. And um, also with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announcement yesterday, um, we also want to do a little shout out for one of our past guests which was notinthehall.com. And you can go there and see who has been excluded and why. Um, Would you actually believe that Pat Benatar, Chicago, The Cure, The Doobie Brothers, and even the B-52s have never even been nominated? So um, you want to learn more about that, go there. And... um, as many of you may know, I'm fond of saying that any schmo can say he's an internet lawyer, but you have to see who's the real deal. And today we have the real deal. Our guests include Ian Ballin, the dean of internet lawyers, who wrote the book on internet law. 
literally. And joining Ian is Evan Brown, the co-host of This Week in Law with Denise Howell on Twit TV and publisher of Internet Cases. Welcome both of you to Web Radio. Um, gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to explain the top stories of 2013 and why. And Ian, I will start with you. What will the 2014 update of e-commerce and internet law say about 2013? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Bennett, let me say I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for uh, for inviting me. Um, there, there were really a lot of major issues uh, in in 2013. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in updating my treatise every year for uh, for um, more than 13 years is that the volume of law has increased dramatically. When I first uh, started writing my treatise in 1995, um, you know, the the issue was there wasn't a lot of internet law, and the question was how does the law of the physical world apply to the digital realm. Today, there is a tremendous amount of law. I mean, just as an example from my own experience, uh, what I was, when I started writing with the intention of having it be a 200-page book was eventually published as a three-volume set. It's now four volumes, and, and we're pushing to five just because of the volume of cases. The problem that we see now is so much law that there's a lack of consistency. And within the United States, consistency among the circuits and consistency among the states. One of the areas that this comes up in uh, most frequently is online contracting uh, and what is required to make a terms of use uh, agreement enforceable or, or other kind of uh, online contract. Uh, and there are a couple of issues there. One of them is that, um, uh, that, that which law applies can make a difference in terms of whether an agreement is enforceable. California uh, is the um, is probably the most difficult place to enforce an online contract because the law is governing what's called unconscionability, which is a doctrine uh, that will invalidate an agreement if there is uh, if it, if it's too sharp or too one-sided. Um, that the, the 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 law on unconscionability is dramatically different in California than almost any other state, and so. If you, if you litigate the same issues around the country, there are some jurisdictions where the contract's more likely to be enforced and some where it's less likely. The other contracting issue that, that we've seen, particularly in the last year, is courts confusing the terms browser wrap and click wrap. And those are, those are terms that, that uh, were coined in a law review article in the 90s. A judge in Sacramento first used those terms in 1999, they're really not legal terms. The legal term, uh, the legal concept is whether you have an express agreement, uh, an offer and acceptance, or whether you have an implied contract where notice is provided and then people use a website or use a mobile app having gotten notice even if they did not expressly assent or click a button saying that they agree. Um, and in the past year we've seen several courts around the country uh, talk about click wrap licenses, which is a shorthand term for express assent when someone gets a button and and uh, and and clicks their assent. Probably the gold standard for that is is what Apple does, where you have to scroll down, check a box, and press a button saying you accept, making it very difficult for anyone to argue they didn't know there was a contract. Uh, and what's called browse wrap, which is a shorthand term for instances where implied assent is sought, 
or where there's just a notice, a posted notice giving you notice that if you use the app or use the website, certain things will happen. And I think that's problematic because if courts confuse one and the other where the law is quite different, they're more likely to make a mistake. And that's, um, that's unfortunately one of the problems. In the world of, of Internet and digital technology, uh, things are so interesting that judges come up with interesting terminology. And if they use that terminology in place of, of black-letter law, they're more likely to get confused. And um, you know, we've seen that to an extent, but the, the law on... on you know, um, the law on browse wraps is pretty much, you know, um, a lot of times you'll lose. And if you really have something important, you want to have it in a click wrap. I think that's, ab- that's absolutely correct. I mean, again, as a matter of black letter law, as long as adequate notice is provided, uh, you, you know, a contract should be formed. But as a practical matter, a lot of judges are very uncomfortable, particularly in consumer contracts, finding a contract Unless, unless the user expressly assented or unless the user acknowledges that they knew there was a posted terms of use. If a user says, you know, gosh, I had no idea there, there was anything posted there, um, judges are very reluctant, as you suggest, to enforce it. Even though as a matter of law, uh, that shouldn't necessarily be the case. The issue is really whether the notice was adequate. Now, there's an interplay with, we were talking offline about some of the other top issues. There's an interplay between the, 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 the whole idea of whether you use click wrap or browse wrap and, and, we, and recent decisions affecting arbitration. Because many of the web terms have an arbitration clause. And um, we've had some clarification on how enforceable they are. But if that's important to you, you definitely want to have a, a, click, a click wrap. Right. The, uh, the arbitration issue is a very important one. In the past, uh, I mean, really starting probably in the late 90s, around 2000, a lot of inter- Internet companies started using arbitration provisions in their online contracts because uh, uh, if, if you uh, forced an, an, an issue to arbitration, you could avoid uh, class action litigation. And um, uh, the standards for certifying a class are relatively low, and if a plaintiff can certify a class action, the cost of litigation is so high that even if the defendant did nothing wrong, it is often cheaper to settle the case than to fight on the merits. And so companies increasingly started using arbitration provisions. Uh, Because of that, courts in more liberal jurisdictions, starting first in California and then following in New Jersey um, um, and uh, and Washington State and actually even Florida, which is not one of the more liberal jurisdictions, but in a number of different states, started invalidating those uh, provisions in consumer contracts. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about the doctrine of unconscionability. Uh, courts would find that if there was an arbitration provision in a consumer contract, that was unconscionable. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in 2011 in the Concepcion case said that those rules, those judge-made rules, uh, are, pre- are preempted by federal law. Congress enacted the Federal Arbitration Act many years ago to encourage the use of arbitration as a cheaper alternative to litigation. And so that, that really changed the dynamic. And in the last year, we've seen a lot of litigation providing further clarification. There was another case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 involving American Express and a group of merchants, not... 
Looks like we lost Ian. Evan Brownie, as uh, we mentioned before, he's the co-host of This Week in Law on um, Twit TV. He's the publisher of Internet Cases. And Evan, um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. And, you know, thank you very much for having me. And uh, once we get Ian back, uh, you know, I'd like to express to him how great it is to virtually meet him. You know, he said that he'd first published a book about internet law in 1995. So how humbling it is to be on a phone call with the guy who wrote the book long before many of us had even gotten on the internet in the first place. So Exactly. And yeah, I mean, they always talk about he wrote the book. I mean, this guy literally did. And and in some ways he's also writing it different in a different way to the extent that, you know, he's defining law through his practice. But um, Evan, you've been very active here and you've been following cases. What do you see as the top thing for 2013 on the Internet? Well, 2013, unlike several of the years past, I think has seen at least a couple of watershed issues. You know, it's easy for us at the end of every year to go and say, oh, you know, this was a, uh, there was so much that happened this year, but if you really look at it in terms of historical trends, most years are just kind of incremental changes uh, when it comes to the way we look at the internet and the way it's regulated and, and all of that. And, and uh, along those lines, I don't see that there has been any huge change or any huge transformation in the law. But what I see, what I'm characterizing as watershed or really kind of a transformational uh, moment that 2013 has been is in the way that a lot of these issues, which those of us who, uh, you know, the, the more wonkish types of us who look at these things have really become mainstream. And I think the real flagship issue has to be the NSA, Ed Snowden, and the greater public awareness of surveillance and the privacy issues that go with that and it's been that cultural attention that's put on that that I think has been the the single biggest thing of this year um, but you know there's there's plenty of other things that have happened this year as well that are interesting and and I I enjoy uh, looking at the, the, the real human interest side of the internet and the way that it affects us culturally socially and then the laws role in coming to manage you know this great great circus that we have as a society, uh, you know, being, being online. So lots of different, lots of different interesting things happened this past year yeah, I was, characterized in those ways. I was kind of hoping you would lead with a Dunkin' Donuts um, rant lady, but no, just kidding. Um, I, I, I agree with you on the NSA and I see, um, you're right, I agree with you on how you characterize it because I think one of the stories of 2014 will be um, what happens now that um, Everyone is more aware about privacy. Everyone's more concerned about privacy. Does that translate into action on privacy? But I also see two other big trends that all flow from the NSA and that will be lasting in 2014 and beyond. And one of them is that um, you've created a, a danger for U.S. companies because um, especially those that deal in the cloud. Because there's some evidence of you know job you know um, opportunities lost by U.S. companies because people are now afraid to do business with the U.S. entity because they think that means doing business with the NSA. Um, and then the other aspect is that um, this has created a shift in terms of how 
we talk about internet governance. And um, there's more, um, I think, of an emphasis or more of an acceptance of doing some other um, internet model that is less dependent on the U.S. You're right. And, and, and I would add a third consequence of that. I mean, those are, those are two big ones. And, and I think that another third thing that, that would stand on equal footing with those issues or those concerns or those calls to action, however you would want to characterize them, is a greater awareness of the individual and his or her role in protecting their own privacy. You know, the use of Tor, the use of encryption. Those are conversations that just we didn't have nearly as often uh, beforehand. And to a certain extent, I think that, you know, if the individual can become aware of those and take action, that will for lack of a better way of characterizing it, mitigate the harm that is uh, associated with communicating in a world where the NSA is watching us. You know, those. You know, it, it can do just that sort of, sort of, sort of mitigate that that harm. So I think we're seeing a reaction on, at the individual level, being more uh, care, more concerned about their privacy. But that, that first point you mentioned is a is a tough tough one because it presents some questions that doesn't that don't have really good answers. You were talking about the business fallout from this. And, you know, I've had some conversations with some colleagues and other contacts in the field and, and, you know, we just kind of kick around this idea. What is a company's liability to its users if it makes certain representations to its right. users that it will protect privacy in a certain way? And clearly when terms like that are written in a user agreement or a privacy policy or some other sort of communication, what have you, some kind of, you know, even in marketing assurances, the, the assumption is, or I think the, the general mindset is you're, the, the company's trying to protect against black hat hackers and right. uh, carelessness, you know, not having the, the laptop, uh, you know, unencrypted left in an employee's car <laughs> and all that but, stuff. We, we don't ever think of it in terms of Big Brother watching us. So I, I just really am kind of uh, befuddled about how to even go about managing those questions of liability because it's this monolithic force, namely the government, who's, you know, exerting these questionably, only questionably constitutional uh, actions against us. And so the, the business risk is, is hard to hard to pin down. And then as, as a lawyer, does that mean in drafting privacy policies, you actually have to have a clause that says we, we can't make we can't represent one way or the other um, the extent which information is safe from government encroachment? I would like to think that if push came to shove, that a force majeure clause might be relevant to this. And, and I don't know if that's straining the concept of force majeure too much, but, you know, if we look at the general purpose of what that is, you know, the, the, the parties, if they can't perform uh, because of some act of God or, uh, you know, maybe the NSA is, uh, has powers <laughs> these days on par with God, uh, you know, and they can't, can't perform, then they're excused. The problem with that is that a lot of these privacy assurances are by design, and I think it's a good design, outside of the scope of a terms of service. You know, a lot of, for a lot of reasons, companies don't want to be bound contractually by what a privacy policy says. So that adds another kind of angle or layer of, of complexity to it as well. So um, I, I would hope that 
if this an issue like this actually were litigated, where a company sought damages or where a customer, an end user, sought damages against a company because of NSA uh, access or government access to this, that a court, you know, looking at it from the company's, the provider's perspective here, that a court would read in some sort of doctrine of it having been impossible to perform or impracticable to perform because we all know that um, with, without going to extraordinary efforts, it would be difficult to keep the NSA from doing the kind of spying that Ed Snowden and others have, have told us all about. Well, Evan, you know, artfully, you know, kind of played the, you know, the juxtaposition of God and um, the NSA, but there's actually a higher authority that I have to answer to, and that's my producer, and we have to take a short break. But we'll be back after these messages um, with, with Evan Brown and Ian Ballant talking about the year's top stories in Cyberlaw. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Guys, are you suffering from FD, fulfillment dysfunction? Let MoldingBox.com's online portal system for inventory, tracking, and returns perform for you. We have the enormous tools you need for complete warehousing, shipping, and handling of all your packages, no matter the size or shape, directly to your customers. MoldingBox.com can also fulfill all your nourishing, nutraceutical, and smooth skincare product desires, including green coffee and Garcinia on demand. Plus, let our in-house printing and CD, DVD manufacturing help you enlarge and maximize your coaching and business opportunity potential. We do everything. Fulfillment, shipping, tracking, inside and out, and all in one place. Moldingbox.com. It's shipping made sexy. Ever wondered how you could have access to your own SEO expert, paid search specialist, or social media wizard? Looking for help with your affiliate display media or email marketing? Look no further than the folks at Fang Digital Marketing. Fang Digital specializes in both paid and organic search, social media, display, and mobile advertising solutions, and is staffed by industry veterans from Google, Yahoo, and one of the industry's most influential PPC experts. Fang Digital's award-winning staff stays on top of the latest in digital trends and offer tailored solutions so they can audit your progress and build a roadmap to your success. Learn more about their expanding range of full-service strategic marketing solutions at fangdigital.com. That's F-A-N-G digital.com. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Welcome to Market Square, where you'll learn about fundamental human truths and up-to-the-minute trends that shape how and why marketers and people connect. Market Square, on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back with our all-star panel here to talk about the, um, the big developments of 2013 in cyber law. And um, we, we lost Ian Ballin 
Um, he fell into a black hole in cyberspace, but we've rescued him, and he's back. Ian. Hi, good to be uh, good to be back. And um, we, we were talking offline, and well, there was one big development this year um, with the FTC on COPA, the Children's Online Privacy Act, and um, you know, so that would be a big area, wouldn't it? Yeah, there, there are actually a number of interesting issues with children that I think. Um, uh, companies and individuals need to watch for on the internet. Um, probably the biggest development is that the Federal Trade Commission issued new regulations implementing the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, which is a 1998 statute. And the uh, the prior regulations had been in effect for uh, about a decade. Um, these are significantly more detailed regulations. Uh, they were released with 150 FAQs, um, and so it, uh, it it requires a lot of reading to wade through the material. Um, the, the, uh, there are a number of, of of significant changes. Probably the biggest ones are that uh, that websites. Uh, are now essentially going to be held strictly liable for the practices of uh, plug-ins or other add-ons to their site. So if you run a company, you're doing things on the Internet, and you've got a third party that is doing something on your site, uh, you're, you know, or with your data, you, you are actually going to be responsible for COPPA compliance. The, the big issue continues to be, as it was under the prior regulations, whether a website is directed to children, which under the statute is, is defined as those under age 13. And in that regard, the FTC looks not only at what you say, but what the website looks like. So if your terms of use say this website is available only for people over the age of 13, and it's filled with cartoon characters and games that people under the age of 10 would enjoy, uh, the FTC is not going to give you a free pass. So they actually they look at what you do, not just what you say. Um, but beyond that, for general purpose websites, which don't actually have to age verify or anything like that, uh, if they become aware that they are collecting personal information from minors, they need to either delete that information right away or they need to follow specific procedures to get verifiable parental consent. The new regulations apply not only to websites but also to mobile applications. And quite significantly, the Federal Trade Commission signaled that they are going to start studying privacy issues involving teenagers. Uh, Congress, in the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, uh, adopted this law to protect the information of children under age 13. And so there is a wide area uh, where you have minors who are, who are not... Um, you know, not adults under the state law, but are not subject to COPPA. And the Federal Trade Commission has indicated they're going to start looking at those issues. And any time the Federal Trade Commission uh, signals they're going to start looking at something, what tends to follow are either guidelines, regulations, and here I don't think there are any regulations that could issue because there's no statute from Congress. So it would likely be guidelines or enforcement actions. Uh, you right. couple that with the fact that the age of majority uh, differs around the country. In most states, it's 18, but in Alabama, Mississippi, and Nebraska, it varies a little bit, and it can be as high <laughs> as 19 or, in some circumstances, 21. Or for, mo for married children, uh, even younger in, ne in Nebraska, but, it, it, but it's not uniform. And under, under all state laws, contracts with minors are either void uh, or avoidable. And there are, there's at least one class action suit pending 
uh, by children through their parents claiming that they should get credit card payments back for purchasing virtual products because under California law they're incompetent to enter contracts. So these issues, and particularly the FTC's focus, I think really suggest that, uh, that the whole issue of, of commerce involving teenagers and children, which with mobile devices is quite significant, is something that's going to be getting more attention from regulators and class action lawyers. And, you know, um, if you look at what the FTC has done in the past, you know, in, some, in areas where there hasn't been clarity, um, often they do through enforcement, not through providing guidance. And um, yeah. we saw that in earlier the, in the last decade um, with the enforcement actions over you know some of the free promotions. Now, Evan, what, what do you think about that? Well, um, I mean, in in general, the the changes with with COPPA, the new guidance we have here is is well overdue, uh, as, as Ian pointed out. The, the, you know, when we were dealing with with with. Uh, Ten-year-old instructions from the uh, from the, from the FTC on this. So, what we what we have what's really precipitating the need for all this is, I think, really the the, the expanded presence of social media plus the greater use of mobile apps. You know, my, I have two kids, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and you know, they're the way that they use mobile apps is so different and. The, the means by which information could be transmitted is so um, so just just so different in kind from sitting at the computer uh, uh, you know using you know playing a game visiting a website doing doing what have you there so I think that it's it, it, I mean of course there's nothing that I could really add or detract to what Ian was saying kind of laying the groundwork with all of this but those you know the ways in which the use of the technology has changed really underscores the importance for greater understanding of this because without that there was a real opportunity for some gaps to to fall in gaps for things to fall through um, even looking at things like location information things that just weren't nearly as relevant in 1998 and 2000 when we had the, the guidance from these things so much uh, so much of a transformation there I, I should add that Evan is from Chicago and, and by saying nothing I, I do shall add or detract he evoked um, Illinois' most famous um, son of uh, Abraham Lincoln from the Gettysburg Address. Nothing we say here can add or detract to, um, I forget the rest of it, but any event. Um, and also the world will little note nor long remember, right? Is that there we go. And let, I think that, that part applies to the show. <laughs> but you know, in, in, in terms of this area, um, one thing we've seen is a great sensitivity of the regulators to mobile apps. And, you know, for example, um, in California, the Attorney General Harris has a great sensitivity to it. Um, the head of the, the outgoing head of the National Association of Attorney Generals, Doug Gansler, you know, he's expressed a great interest in addressing this issue. And, and so um, it, it seems like this is an area we're probably going to see something happen in 2014. We just don't know what. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think there are going to be a lot of developments. Certainly, the the attorney general in California has been extremely active with mobile apps. I mean, really, I think in California we've seen more activity um, it, it involving uh, the internet 
um, than we've seen at any time in, in almost eight years. In, you know, in the, in, 2000, in the 2002 to 2004 area, California passed a number of first-in-the-nation first laws involving um, the first security breach notification statute, uh, the first law requiring that companies post a privacy policy, and the first law requiring that companies maintain reasonable security procedures and require uh, parties that, that collect information from them to, to do the same. And what we've seen, um, I, you know, I would extend it a little bit more than a year, maybe the last 14 months. Uh, Attorney General Harris first started by sending out letters to several hundred app developers. Uh, then she, uh, she actually filed a suit against Delta Airlines. I think there's some significant uh, issues of federal preemption in that lawsuit, but in any case, it, you know, it reflected a fairly aggressive move. Uh, January 2013, we got uh, the guidelines, privacy on the go for, for mobile app yes. developers. Uh, I think that what we'll see in 2014 is more enforcement efforts. I think that, uh, I mean, we also see in, in, in the antitrust area, uh, the California Attorney General has been quite active. So I think it's fair to assume that Attorney General Harris in California is going to continue to push the boundaries uh, and push for more enforcement and possibly more regulation. And, and I do think that, uh, that mobile app uh, developers, um, you know, have to pay particularly close attention. And um, just this just in, um, the White House is expected to release a review board's report um, on the NSA that is um, recommending that the NSA should not keep the phone database and um, other ref- and also calling for reform of the NSA. So um, definitely something we'll be um, talking about next year. Um, Evan, anything you want to add on uh, Camilla Harris? In Illinois, are they as active in enforcement? Well, certainly not as uh, as as active. Um, you know, uh, Attorney General Harris out there in in California certainly gets the the press uh, for these things, releasing those different publications, those uh, you know guidance on that, and and what Ian was talking about the the January privacy on the go uh, recommendation. Uh, so in Illinois, we don't we don't see nearly as as much of that. Certainly doesn't get the press. But uh, you know, kudos to Attorney General Harris not only for what she's doing with uh, with privacy, but uh, you know, she's active in a, in a lot of different areas with the uh, with with the internet that are relevant to the top stories of of 2013. Uh, you know, there was the there was the was it a, it was a, I know the charges were filed. I'm not sure what the exact status is in against the purveyor of that revenge porn site uh so you know that's just a she's she's active in a lot of different different ways in, well, when it comes that to actually, pressing issues that touches on a, a big issue that i saw for 2013 and you know you had a bunch of attorney generals actually petitioned to congress to amend um the communications decency act section 230 immunity um you know which provides immunity for websites for um that have forms for the comments of their parties, and um, and so they wanted immunity from state criminal laws, and uh, which caused howls um, within the internet community. But it seems that as we have this whole debate about revenge porn sites and some of the reputation sites, that there's been this battle going back and forth. For example, the case with the dirty, over the extent to which um, Section 230 covers immunity in these cases. Ian, what do you think of the dirty decision? Uh, well, that that's 
I mean, that's a very interesting case, and it, uh, um, you know, unfortunately, the cases with the worst facts tend to make the worst law. Uh, Section 230 has been one of those laws that has really fostered the development of the commercial Internet. You know, if you look at 230, which uh, preempts a lot of uh, secondary uh, liability claims under state law and even from under federal law, particularly defamation, which is, you know, has been just an area of, of tremendous litigation. Um, and then in addition, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which creates harbor, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, protective provisions for uh, domain name registrars under the Anti-Cyber Squad and Consumer Protection Act. You know, these kind of laws that were enacted by Congress in the 1990s to create exemptions or safe harbor for Internet companies have been very important in fostering the development of, uh, of these businesses. Um, what has happened is you have um, a couple of companies uh, that, that, that are really pushing the bounds. Um, and so what's happened is we started to see a divergence in the way the laws construed the Ninth Circuit a couple of years ago in the roommate.com case. The, the court um, construed the term development very broadly so that a website that otherwise would have CDA protection under Section 230 uh, would lose it if the way they set up their website, the user content is essentially directed or, or, or a function of the way the, uh, the company set up the website and therefore, uh, they, they developed it and they don't have the immunity. Uh, the Roommates.com case is a really good example of that where, um, you know, in that case, the, the court held they had no immunity. They ended up having to litigate another four years before ultimately being not liable. And, it, you know, the Fourth Circuit, which has the strongest and the broadest interpretation of the, of the, C, of the CDA, uh, pointed out in a case that uh, an immunity... Um, is not very useful if you have to go to trial to prove your entitlement to to the uh, exemption. And at least in the fourth serve, it's an issue that could be resolved as early as possible in a case because of the importance of the overriding federal policy. So you have the Fourth Circuit, which is extremely protective of Internet and digital sites. You have the Ninth Circuit, which has a spongier test that allows more room for plaintiffs to uh, argue around it. And then what we've got now, the, the dirty case involves brought in Kentucky before, uh, you know, in a very conservative jurisdiction before uh, an older judge who's, um, you know, not, the most, not necessarily the most Internet savvy uh, on, you know, on very bad facts. You have a, you have a website that, um, uh, that, that, that took a private individual uh, and accused her of being unfaced and, and, and made a lot of very um, nasty comments that, that, that were indeed were actionable, not just that they're nasty, but they would be actionable directly as, de as defamation and under other state torts. Uh, and the line between what was user-generated and what came from the site was, was really blurred. So now you've got another circuit, the Sixth Circuit, that's going to have to consider the case. And, um, you know, the problem is if on these bad facts, the court, um, you know, agrees with with the judge and the jury in that case that there's no CDA protection. 
they may end up rule that also uh, supposed to provide protection for uh, for mainstream internet sites. And you know, this I think is the biggest problem that sites. You know, there are a couple of sites out there that are trying to push the envelope in terms of what they do and and what they can get away with. And uh, it may make things more difficult for the rest of of the internet. So in other words, what what good is a bright line rule if it's a dotted line? Exactly, and it's uh, in some in some plays it's blurred, not even dotted. But um, it is a great. I mean, it, it's a, they talk about difficult cases make difficult law, a bad law. But I mean, you have a case involving a cheerleader um, for the Cincinnati Bengals, and uh, who was a high school student. Uh, excuse me, who was teaching a high school and said it affected her reputation uh, as a high school teacher. Um, but then she was arrested for having sex. Um, with a minor, which turned out to be one of her students who she's now engaged to. So uh, regardless of how the Sixth Circuit decides, I, I see a TV movie coming out of this one. Evan, what, what do you think about the whole CDA battle? Well, I mean, we're definitely at a point where Section 230 is really being stretched. I don't know if it's being stretched to its breaking point. Probably not. But what we see is this real strain on it because of, I think we could characterize them as opportunistic websites like The Dirty, like um, isanyoneup.com, like is, uh, you know, yougotposted.com, which is the subject of the charges that Attorney General Harris filed last week. Um, these these website operators recognize the immunity that Section 230 affords and do things that really are not good business practices. They're just not nice, polite things to do, you know, encourage or even, we don't even have to characterize it that way, just by merely providing a platform, you know, providing a, a platform for to, to post embarrassing photos, contact information uh, on people. So uh, from, a, from a real gut perspective, we recognize that those things just aren't right and those aren't the types of things that we want to permit in a, a law-abiding society. And unfortunately, Section 230 steps in and at least makes it difficult for people to uh, obtain a civil remedy against the website operator and will likely present some real challenges to criminal enforcement of, Calif of California law pertaining to identity theft and, and extortion. So, yes, I'll be the, the make it three out of three of us to observe that bad facts make bad law, difficult facts make difficult law. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not sure that Section 230 needs to be thrown out, that it needs to be rewritten. When we have decisions like the roommates.com decision Ian was talking about that came out a number of, of years ago, where we can make a, a pretty factually specific inquiry as to what it is that the website operator is doing. And if we can look at those facts and evaluate whether it is that they're doing is really enough to make them become a provider of the information itself that is allegedly tortious or allegedly criminal or, or what have you. If, we, if, if the courts allow a very factual, specific inquiry to be made, then I think that there's room for uh, these 
folks who start up these revenge porn websites or uh, publish sites like Dirty, which is a little bit different, but it still is scandalous, encouraging scandalous, scandalous information to be published. Um, I think there's room to uh, see that they don't get too much of a of a hold. Yes, uh, I mean there's there's a there's visceral reaction to it, and I'd like to quote uh, one of our former fellow guests um, in the past is uh, Mark Mendoza, who does some work in this area for victims, and he says, "I want to hurt is anyone down dot com. I want to hurt them bad." Who's with me? And so that, that's that's the visceral reaction you have. But um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll um, take you to the final part of our year-end show with Ian Ballin and Evan Brown. You're listening to Cyberlaw. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Why do over 15,000 small businesses love working with Infusionsoft? Because we believe in people and their dreams. We empower entrepreneurs and our groundbreaking tools help small businesses grow and thrive. We listen. We care. We serve our customers and we do what we say we'll do. We're always trying to find new ways to innovate and to improve our all-in-one sales and marketing platform. Most of all, from email to e-commerce, we help small businesses like yours succeed. Go to Infusionsoft.com slash radio to watch a free product demo. That's Infusionsoft.com slash radio. And a pitch. There are many things we would love to catch. Catching the final out of a baseball game. And that's the ball game. Reeling that big catch of the day. Or catching a ride home. Taxi! How about catching more attention, like the biggest retail brands on earth? Introducing Catchy.com, where they sell short branded attractive.com domain names. Use a short and catchy brand, just like Sony, Visa, and Nike for your next business venture. You can even rent to own for as low as $100 a month. Catch a big break for your business with Catchy.com. I'm John Ball, and I'm one of the founders of Page One Power. Page One Power is a custom link building firm based in Boise, Idaho. We increase search rankings and web traffic for world-class brands and mom-and-pop shops all around the globe. Our link building strategies work because we focus on relevancy and quality, and we don't outsource anything. Our in-house staff of professional writers and researchers is the best in the industry. We're the link builders you've been looking for. Visit us today at pageonepower.com. WebmasterRadio.fm is the destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Engage with our panel of on-air experts and peers by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn so you can reach us before and after every program. We also feature our exclusive real-time chat room where we welcome all listeners to engage with our show hosts during every live show. You can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on air or on demand from our website or through iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. Interact and stay informed by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly taking you to the final part 
of our year-end edition. We've done 120 shows now at the, once we conclude our third year. And uh, we want to thank all of you for listening um, these past three years and hope you've enjoyed it. Um, so as we wrap up and look at what were the biggest stories, there's certainly some stories that kind of gave a little chuckle to us or certain people um, we'd like to shout out as, as heroes or zeros. Evan, did any come to mind? Well, I mean, we got to remember that 2013 was Anthony Weiner Redux. Uh, that we can't forget about that. That involved the internet and you know people making bad decisions on on what to do online. At least those, uh, you know, his his shenanigans. The second round of that were uh, were you know were exposed in in 2013. So that that always can elicit a chuckle, right? Oh, certainly, and. Um... It, it definitely was definitely one to get a chuckle. But um, anything else come to mind that you like? For example, I, I really liked the Dunkin' Donuts lady story. Um, it was something about it showed the viral nature of the internet in a way that was astounding. And that here was a person who assumed that this was a tool that she could use to exact, you know, extract retribution against this poor, helpless worker. And, and instead, it was quite the opposite. You know, she was uh, out of work and more or less had to hide. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the, the whole story of, of things going viral is something that will only increase as more people have cameras and the ability to publish and, and we are tapped into this constant stream of, of content through social media, what have you. I mean, I think there are a number of, of interesting examples of things like that going viral uh, from the past year. You know, there was a kid who was, uh, for example, worked at Golden Corral and filmed how, uh, you know, the, the state inspectors or the city inspectors, I, I don't remember, were there to, to look at the kitchen and somebody had rolled this whole big cart of meat out back by the trash can to avoid being inspected. So, you know, that's just a natural consequence of social media and the sharing that we have the ability to do in our, in our culture today afforded by technology. You know, we'll, we'll only see more of that in the future. Well, I think that's true. I think, you know, we're going to see um, just the way stories spread rapidly. I mean, it has changed. You know, we used to talk about a 24-hour news cycle. I mean, we're, we're talking about an hour news cycle. Well, sure. Things- Things get spread so rapidly, and, and, and it's have, got a, it, it's got an underbelly, a dark side too. If you remember true. after the Boston bombings, um, the, you know everyone—well, not everyone—but the, the the Reddit community to, to trying to identify the suspects. You remember a couple of days later, the right. FBI released photos of the Sarnayev brothers, and uh, we didn't know they were the Sarnayev brothers yet. We only knew them by the the photos, and then you know thousands of people got on Reddit, and there was that poor student missing from Brown University who was, uh, you know, a lot of people were thinking that he had been involved with the Boston bombing. So there can be a real, a real downside to it as well. Uh, and I think Although, we see that almost in every story. But it also, I don't know if that's unique to the internet, because if I, if I mentioned the name Richard Jewell, um, ah, right. and so remember him from the Atlanta bombings. I mean, granted, there was the internet in 96, but not really in a major way. That was just... That was network T um, messing that one up. Right now, the mess up can be instant rather than taking a few days, like the the story of Richard Jewell to to uh, you know unfold. That's the thing. I mean, the internet is a, is a tool for spreading information, you know, disinformation or not. And um, so you know, there are there are just so many interesting little aspects of human interest that uh, have a 
law and technology angle on them. You know, I'm looking at my list here, you know, Bitcoin. I think we couldn't talk about the year in review when it comes to the Internet without talking about Bitcoin and all the monetary and all the cultural and the legal issues that it presents. You know, we had Silk Road, the uh, infamous online dark, you know, mar black market marketplace get raided by the FBI and, and shut down. Um, we're also seeing more uh, mainstream use of Bitcoin. There was, a, I forget the name of the company now, there's a company in Australia who's willing to accept Bitcoin payments for, they make these like off-road carts. You know, I think of them as kind of a, between a, a ATV and a, and a golf cart. Uh, they'll accept Bitcoin payments to get around unfavorable international exchange rates with currency. So I think that Bitcoin will be a really interesting thing to watch in the next year. We've seen some interesting developments in 2013. Uh, it looks like it's experiencing a big bubble right now. So the whole notion of alternative forms of currency, whether it be Bitcoin or something else, other some form of uh, cryptocurrency could really be an interesting uh you know, family yeah. developments to watch. In, in the yeah, I've seen that. That some one of the things driving Bitcoin is really more of an ideological thing. You know, kind of a do the radar away from government regulation. And um, although at the same time, Bitcoin has been sitting down with the Treasury people to try to make sure that they're they're complying with you know bank transfer laws and things of that nature. And we actually had had we we're going to have a show on Bitcoin, but unfortunately the guy had to cancel the the morning of the show. But um, we definitely will be covering that in the new year. Um, and the, the, we're also seeing you know some problems with Bitcoin. You know, Silk Road, for example, is Bitcoin really a tool for money laundering and and for you know illicit transactions. Um, but at the same time, you know, Bitcoin is having some of the problems that any other financial institution is having, and that is um, hacking. And there were a whole, what, several million dollars worth of bitcoins um, that were stolen and through hackers. Right, right. And then that was so interesting. You could kind of watch that happen in real time. And uh, uh, you know, what are the what are the remedies to those people who have that uh, that currency taken from them if the means by which they got it? We're not lawful. That's, that, that presents some real interesting contract questions that go back to first year of law school. Now, we, we started the year with a show on the death of Aaron Schwartz. And, uh, you know, I imagine in 2014, you know, his death in regarding, you know, from what appeared to be an overzealous prosecution um, um, under the um, Computer Fraud Abuse Act that led to him committing suicide rather than spending jail time. Um, has led to a, a renewed focus over the copyright issue, and and um, and this may come up as the copyright uh, comes up for renewal um, legis in legislation. And um, you know he was busted for putting making available academic papers, and uh, that was treated as a violation of the Computer Fraud Abuse Act, and and the, the U.S. Attorney was pushing for jail time, and and so. Um, I think that's going to be a big issue in 2014. Um, what is the role of copyright? And you're going to have a battle between that tech community and the content community, which you may see also in, in Antigua, as we had discussed the region show too, with the piracy issue there. Sure. I mean, Aaron Swartz is such a crystallizing symbol for a number of important issues on that front. I mean, you know, first of all, what is the role of criminal enforcement against 
things like a violation of terms of service. And that we naturally can expand on the questions of what's the role of criminal enforcement of copyright law. I don't think there was a criminal copyright component to, to his case there, but you know, it raises these natural questions. And we, when we think of Aaron Swartz, we think of the great efforts that he did to raise awareness about SOPA and PIPA. And you know, he was one of the, one of the founders of Reddit uh, you know, after all, and you know this this community that really allows for the communications about these uh, important um, important issues, and so you know, there's no doubt that uh, the, the those things for which Aaron Swartz stood and for which his death really provides a catalyst for rallying, those issues are going to continue way into the future and force a real important discussion about the role of copyright, what it plays, what effect it has on innovation, and, and more importantly, where what's the proper role of the government to come in and enforce certain interests at the risk of, of uh, violating important First Amendment and, and privacy interests. So very uh, significant event in this space that you know that his death that, that happened in the, the first part of this year but it you know naturally will extend for a, a long period of time into the kind of discussions and transformations that we're going to see in the law and um, well we're running short on time um, but I want to take this moment to thank all our guests today um, Evan and, and Ian um, you know, it's privileged to have such you know talent as you guys on the show, and but I also want to thank our guests throughout the year. The, you know, the many great people who took the time to um, talk internet law with me and our listeners. Um, quickly shout out to EFF for their many contributions. Um, Rebecca Madigan, who's been on here countless times, Dan Tynan, Brendan Christian, in particular. We want to thank you all. And um, it also was great fun talking to Doris Kearns Goodwin, particularly about the Boston Red Sox and their World Series championship. So happy um, holidays to everyone and a happy and, and um, prosperous New Year. We'll be here um, back after the New Year and look forward to talking to you then. Um, till then, this is Bennett Kelly. Court is adjourned. See you next year here on Cyber Law and Business Report on webmasterradio.fm. Take our download our mobile app and take us with you wherever you go in the holidays. I hear Sergeant St. Bart's is nice, so I um, hope to go there through you guys. And, and tell us, send us postcards. I want to know where we've been. But please, download our mobile app. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere. Cheers. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.